Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Pastor Jerry O'Brien. Pastor O'Brien currently serves as the senior pastor of Faith Harvest Fellowship in Worcester, Ohio. He's also uh, ministered on the 700 Club, TBN, and has been on the platform with nationally known ministers such as Rod Parsley, Richard Roberts, Benny Hinn, Steve Munsley, and James Payne. He also was a host of his own radio show in Canton, Ohio for over five years and ministers on a local cable channel as well as on TCT Network, and he's a frequent guest on Ask the Pastor. Boy, that's a that's a mouthful of accomplishments. That's a heck of a lot. You keep busy there, Pastor O'Brien. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here. So you've helped to found Hebron Recovery Group, which is a faith-based recovery housing facility in Millersburg, Ohio. So how did you happen to decide to get involved in that? Well, that was a answer to uh, one solution, should I say, to uh, the problem that we're dealing with in our communities uh, with the drug addiction uh, and the epidemic that's going on. I sat on the, uh, as the faith-based representative uh, for uh, Wayne County, and uh, in doing that, you know, what, uh, when the judge and um, the head prosecuting attorney of the county came to me and asked me to be on that board. They asked me to sit on there so that I could look at this from a a, a pastor's perspective and from the uh, faith-based community's perspective to see what we can do and uh, with this problem, how we can help with this problem. And in that uh, uh, process and going through uh, many many of the meetings, setting there. I was able to discern that one area that the church can step up and help in this was in um, these recovery housing. Uh, Ninety, probably ninety-five, ninety-eight percent of all of the recovery housing units are done by you know basically faith-based organizations, particularly Christian organizations that do it as a ministry, and. And basically, a recovery housing unit is uh, is considered a 
a sober living facility, and it basically is considered residential living. It is to complement uh, what the treatment centers have done. Once the treatment center, somebody has graduated and successfully graduated from a six-month or a 12-month uh, treatment center, uh, this is to aid them in further recovery for those that need that, that may not have a place to go, that may still feel that they're vulnerable. Uh, we can bring them to a recovery housing and begin to uh, help them depending on the need. It might be anywhere from six months to maybe two years. Uh, but we, uh, when when I came up with that and started casting the vision, I had a pastor friend of mine found out about it and asked me about this vision. So I told him, and when I told him that, he said, "Well, you know," he says, "I've got uh, uh, I've got a nursing home that I'd like to make available to you that was donated to us." And so we started looking at that nursing home and in in. Uh, uh, positioning it for a recovery living facility. We developed Hebron Recovery Group uh, to focus uh, not just on one county, but basically a three-county uh, and possibly a four-county effort, you know, to reach into that uh, uh, area of support because there is very little of that. And uh, so when that uh, building came available, you know, we started looking at it. We have not fully uh, been able to get through the um, through the um, zoning right now with this, but uh, it is uh, Hebron Recovery Group is focusing on the three counties, raising money right now to to begin to develop that. But the system itself has already been developed and uh, being implemented. What differentiates a faith-based program, housing recovery program, versus a regular secular one? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. We use basically the scriptural foundation. Uh, we uh, bring them through a twelve-step program. We take that and we add the faith factor into it. You know, using uh, uh, the biblical principles for discipling. And that's different from what, you know, you would see in the secular recovery living. You know, they'll basically do a 12-step program, but they don't take it into, you know, a, uh, a faith relationship. So that's what differentiates there. So do you accept people that maybe aren't members of your faith? Yeah, yeah, no, we don't have a problem, you know, with accepting anybody. You know, it doesn't matter who they are. You know, the program is designed and it's, it's laid out from a Christ-centered perspective, and that is the core of the program. And if anyone is willing to go through that uh, and, um, you know, allow us to, to use these methods with them, then we certainly do not have a problem in uh, having anybody to come through. So, to, but that's, uh, that's, that wouldn't be a problem at all. Okay. So can you describe those that might be a really good fit versus those that maybe wouldn't be a good fit? Yeah, the, uh, those that uh, would, would look at our facility or, or our uh, approach to recovery uh, uh, favorably will be those that basically would have a faith-based uh, foundation those that uh, you know recognize you know 
that faith does play a part in, and they want faith to play a part in their uh, recovery. Uh, those that it wouldn't be a good uh, fit would be those that uh, do not, you know, they, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they don't believe in uh, a faith or they don't uh, uh, believe in uh, what what you would call organized religion, you know, it, it wouldn't be a good fit for them because the program is designed, you know, to use scriptures and, and to uh, use the faith-based approach. In some recovery housing and some programs in general um, only support uh, people that are recovering that are uh, going through a program that's abstinence-based. Others have a kind of a mixed bag. They they will support medication-assisted uh, treatment as well as abstinence-based. Um, how does your recovery housing work and your program work? We take it from a, a an approach of abstinence because we don't have medical oversight to be able to apply that. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, that a person that is coming would not be able to, you know, go off site and, and get some assistance. You know, there, there's a big debate about that as you and I have talked about, you know, whether, you know, abstinence is, is, uh, good or is it bad? You know, the reality is, you know, we're trying to keep people out of the grave. We're trying to, uh, find ways to, to, um, help people to recovery and not everybody, uh, don't recover the same way. I mean, every, every person is completely different. And, uh, and I actually had, uh, Dr. Russell, uh, uh, four years ago when I got into this, you know, I heard him speak and, and, um, he made a, a very good point. He said, there are going to be, it's just the fact of the matter is that there are going to be people who ultimately are going to have to have some assistance, you know, uh, such as Suboxone or, or whatever it is that they come up with. Uh, on a uh, on a permanent basis in their lives it's like uh it's like a um uh, uh insulin you know uh, but uh, that's not the desired method the desired method is to be able to you know uh, help people to the point that they can recover and they would not need uh any assistance from that but it's it right now it's um you know, it's a big discussion right now. Some really are for it, and some really are against it. And uh, but at this point, right now, we've really not found a good a good balance of of how how that should be applied. But as it relates to recovery living, because we don't have the medical oversight or the medical experience, uh, we're not able to administer. You know. Uh, you know, uh, medicines and, and help oversee those medicines for them. Okay. Do you do drug testing? Yeah, we do drug testing. The drug testing is done outside the facility. And, uh, but yeah, there is a mandatory, I think, you know, uh, every recovery living housing that I'm aware of uh, does uh, drug testing. It's a mandatory requirement when they come in that they, they submit to a drug test. What happens when they fail that test? Well, when they fail that test from a recovery living standpoint, we have to then remove them out of the program and 
move them into back into a treatment program. You know, first of all, if they've gotten back into, you know, uh, a heroin-based um, uh, drug, you know, that has kicked in the uh, uh, the um, the activation, so to speak, of the uh, uh, chemicals that cause their bodies to respond uh, uh, and desire this. So we've, we've got to literally take them back to stage one, and they've got to go through detox, and then they've got to go through treatment again because recovery, it, recovery living is just that. We are helping people as they learn to live sober. And if somebody has relapsed, then not only are do we have to do it for their safety, we have to do it for the integrity and safety of those that are there uh, uh, in the in the whole facility. Yeah, one of the challenges for those in recovery is transitioning back to independent living uh, away from their support system. How does your yeah. program help them with that process? Yeah, that that is always the you know, and again, I wish we had a a magic uh, formula for everybody, but everybody is different. Their their home uh, life is uniquely different, and uh, so when someone is uh, it, as they go into treatment and they come out of treatment, move in you know uh, to our um, a recovery living facility. Uh, we assess at that point what their uh, home life is and what support do they have at home, and uh, we begin to position their their leaving the facility uh, based upon the support that they have. So when we get ready to uh, turn them loose and send them home, we know that they uh, they will go home to a environment that they are going to be able to be successful in and to continue the recovery. But uh, uh, the challenges we have is the many of uh, the homes and the environments that they go back into uh, are dealing with the same kind of problems. And one of the things that we do with a faith-based approach is yeah, is uh, we try to provide, you know, a support team, an ongoing support team through the churches. Once the uh, uh, the client leaves the recovery uh, facility, we try to seed them into the church of their choice that has implemented this re- these recovering uh, methods, uh, similar to what they are getting there at the recovery center. So recovery churches are churches that kind of take on this skill set and these processes to actually become recovery churches. They're existing right now, um, and you've kind of recruited them uh, to become recovery churches in your in your community. Is that it? Yes. And in my meetings that I've had in with the opiates uh, meetings, at, uh, the opiates task force meetings, and I've worked with the um, attorney general. I've worked with three, you know, attorney generals for uh, Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky. And sitting in all these meetings, one of the things that I was able to to discern in this, uh, when we look at the the levels of care and how to help the people that are struggling with these addictions, 
there are four uh, levels, you know, of care. You know, you have your intervention, uh, uh, you have your uh, prevention, then you have your treatment, then you have your support. And in those four areas that, that are focused on dealing with this, uh, these addictions, uh, two of these areas, uh, the church is very well qualified. In fact, when I talk to many pastors, I've talked to, you know, seven, eight hundred pastors, and I've been, when I interviewed them, I asked them, you know, uh, uh, why are you not engaged into this problem from a church perspective? And one is that they would, uh, come back to us that they are not qualified. And, you know, they look at that from a treatment standpoint, and the reality is that, uh, uh, that pastors and churches are not qualified as it relates to treatment where you have to implement medicines and you gotta have that medical oversight. And uh, so in that area, the church is not qualified. And for the most part, um, the intervention, you know, is done by the medical and the, and, and law enforcement and the courts. Uh, for the most part, you know, they're not, uh, uh, the church is not qualified to, to do that. But in the area of prevention, you know, we are very qualified through our youth groups and through our after uh, school programs that we could put together, our drug awareness programs that we can put together in, in various ministry types uh, of application. But the biggest area in those four areas that the church is the most qualified, I believe, is the most qualified, is in the area of support. There is no one that can provide the kind of ongoing, long-term support that these people need as the church, you know, and not just them, but their family. You know, when you look at Wayne County, for example, Wayne County has 117,000 people, and there's a little less than 500 churches in the county, and uh, uh, I don't know about you, but that, but uh, that is an enormous uh, uh, resource. There's about 80% of those people in this county attend a church uh, somewhere in the county. So that is a huge resource. So when, when I saw that, I thought, we've got to get the church engaged in this. And then uh, we went out, and there's two programs that uh, we have found that were Christ-centered programs that we, that we uh, were able to... Um, uh, that were actually designed for the churches, and that was Living Free and uh, Celebrate Recovery. So we basically will find churches that have a desire to help in this and, and take on the challenge to minister uh, to this need. And we equip them with one or two or one of those uh, two programs. And as they get acclimated in it and up and running, we add them into the mix. Pastor O'Brien, can you tell us then uh, just a little bit about the difference between the Living Free program and Celebrate Recovery program for the churches? And why would one church uh, decide to become a recovery church utilizing one program versus the other? They're just from different organizations. Uh, Teen Challenge is the one that developed the... uh, the Living Free, and uh, uh, Clayton Arp, who is the national uh, director for that, you know, he's the one that does all of our training up here. But um, 
the living free uh, has more of a corporate, you know, um, uh, outreach where they reach out uh, into the community and and connect with all, all of the churches that are doing living free. Um, the uh, Celebrate Recovery, if I understand it correctly, Celebrate Recovery basically uh, uh, doesn't do the corporate approach, you know, as it relates to if there's six churches in the community, you know, they don't kind of uh, cross, you know, uh, uh, reach over and uh, connect. Uh, the church just, the one church just does their group sessions. This church does their group sessions. It really, uh, it really doesn't matter. I like the living free simply because it does encompasses a, um, a more global reach, uh, uh, bringing together and partnering with other churches. Uh, because one of the things that you'll see is that, uh, if you have somebody that is coming out and, uh, most of these people will have uh, family members that may go to one church and go to several churches. Uh, this way, if they happen to change churches, they can go over to this church, and they've got the exact same kind of format. But as it relates to both of those, uh, uh, the Living Free versus the, the Celebrate Recovery, they both are, are great programs. They're both Christ-centered, and it, I, I like to tell people, if you work that program, you will get what you need to continue uh, living sober. Okay. If a church wanted to do that, um, how would they find out about it to learn a little bit more about it? And also, if a church decided today that they wanted to get started, how long would it take them to get started with this this program and become a recovery church? Well, the uh, Living Free basically has a, um, a, a starter course that uh, they come in and the the churches basically have to develop a champion team. This is not something that the pastors do. This is something that has to be done from the parishioner's standpoint in putting together a ministering team. And they basically attend that first uh, introductory session, which is about, for Living Free, it's about, um, I think it's about four hours to six-hour program, and then they go through it. And then they're encouraged at that point, if you've got a team, let's say you've got four uh, team members, then you basically uh, uh, follow uh, through with uh, beginning classes. And uh, you have to, uh, and there's instructions in there of how to do it, but you have to tailor it to your circumstances from uh, the dynamics of your community. And the same thing uh, goes with the Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery has a different um, uh, training session. I, I think that they, they have a, uh, uh, a team that wants to be a, uh, a Re- Celebrate Recovery church. Uh, they have a process that they walk them through it. But, you know, it's, if somebody today, uh, doesn't know anything about, uh, a, a how to minister to addicts and their church wants to get started, they could be up and running if, um, if they're with either one of these within, uh, four weeks. Wow. Uh, they That's may fast. not, in their own minds, they may not be proficient, but the reality is, that uh, 
it's it's really no different than the discipleship programs that we have within our churches that we're implementing now. It's just a it's a targeted f- uh, focus for discipleship for addicts. And once once they see that, then they feel a lot more comfortable, and then they just jump in and they start uh, they start the ministering process, and then from that point. Uh, uh, the, we turn it over to the Spirit. We do what we know to do, and then leave the rest to the Lord. Great. So, Reverend O'Brien, <clears throat> you've extensively studied the opioid epidemic. What other lessons have you learned that you'd like to pass along to families, maybe that have a family member that's struggling with opioid addiction? Yeah, this uh, one of the misconceptions that family members have is that this can be taken care of with 30 days or, you know, maybe uh, three months. The reality is if somebody is dealing with the, the, this kind of addiction, the statistics show that it's, it will take three to five years for somebody, you know, as they are going through this recovery process, three to five years to be on what we call the safe side of recovery. And uh, so family members, you know, when, when we lay out the expectation, I've got my loved one into this facility, you know, and I'm not a fond of 30-day treatment centers at all. Uh, the, the statistics show that they are not uh, very productive. You know, uh, they do serve a purpose. I mean, a 30-day treatment program is better than the grave. You know, but the reality is it takes a six-month to a 12-month program because you've got to get this, not just the chemical effects of the drug out of the person, but you've got to get the lifestyle out of them, and you've got to retrain them again uh, of how to focus. And, and depending on how severe, severe the damage is done uh, to the brain, uh, that, that may take a lot longer for some people than others. But I, I like to encourage the family members, don't give up. Because there are success stories. I had one judge say to me, does anybody come out of this? I said, judge, they absolutely do. You know, I have a television program called Radical Encounter, and I've got over 100 testimonies of people who've come off of hardcore drugs and who are living free five, ten years uh, and, and have not had relapses. And so it's being done, And but... Uh, uh, in a family's approach to uh, to helping their loved one is not it's not going to be a, a quick fix. We've got to realize we've got to be patient, and we've got to do what it takes. And I tell somebody somebody said to me, "Well, how how many how many times we got to go through this?" I said, "As many times as it takes." I said, "The alternative is that they die." I said, "And that's not acceptable." I says, "You know," and I know that a lot of family members. They get hurt by, you know, their loved ones that are struggling with these addictions. But when we look at what the Scripture says, you know, Jesus told Peter, he said, listen, you are required to forgive them seven times 70. You know, in other words, you know, however many times that they need you to forgive them, 
you need to forgive them. That's what I want to encourage the families to to realize that, you know, that's what we are called to do as the body of Christ. And uh, uh, But there are people who have successfully come out of this, and I want to encourage you with that, that we are going to see, you know, what I believe uh, will be called the... Uh, uh, the the deliverance revivals, because I believe that as the churches are waking up and they are embracing this as a ministry, I tell uh, churches, listen, this is the biggest mission field in America, and uh, is addiction, and we need to gear ourselves and train ourselves and retool our ministering so that we can meet this need. This is what we're called to do. This is what we are designed to do, and we can do it. We are capable and able of doing this. We just got to get focused in the right area. So that's why I, I jumped into this and began to develop Hebrew Recovery Group and start working with the churches on the outside to develop these recovery groups because I, uh, I, I want to train the churches how to retool their ministries so that they can reach in and be a part of what I believe is going to be biblical history when we see uh, these deliverance breakthroughs that we're going to see. Well, this has really been informative and quite enlightening, uh, recovery churches and that whole concept. That's, uh, that certainly sounds like it has a great deal of promise. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners, Pastor O'Brien? Well, the the overall challenges that we have with the uh, drug epidemic and particularly the opiate epidemic is enormous, and it goes beyond a crisis. As one uh, um, sheriff described it, he said, it is a plague that is plaguing our nation, and uh, we can no longer set back and just think that that's in somebody else's community. This crosses over gender barriers, color barriers, racial barriers, economic barriers, and uh, when we've got the government telling us that one out of every three people are dealing with substance abuse in some way, and one out of every five people are the ones that are addicted to the substance abuse, that is almost 40% of America. So if we are going to make any uh, headway in this, it's going to take the whole community. This is not a person's addiction. This is a family's addiction. It's not just one person dealing with the addiction. It's a family. And as the families are dealing with it, the communities are dealing with it. So we need to address it together. You know, the scriptures tells us that a, a, a house divided can't stand, but a house united cannot be broken. So we uh, unite our efforts within the community, the faith community, the social group, uh, uh, networks in the community. We are going to make a difference. And we've got an attorney general in this state who is passionately committed to to doing and bringing resources to bear to to help in uh, uh, taking this problem down and uh, uh, solving this problem, but it's going to take us all. So I just uh, 
pass that on, and, and I know that uh, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing, getting it out there, and uh, this is every bit as much needed. You know, you're helping pass the word and raising the awareness of it, and uh, you're doing a great job, so keep it up. Thank you so much, Pastor O'Brien. Really appreciate that, and really appreciate your time today. We've been visiting today with Pastor Jerry O'Brien, who currently serves as the senior pastor of Faith Harvest Fellowship in Worcester, Ohio. And he also helped found the Hebron Recovery a, uh, Group, which is a faith-based recovery housing facility. And he's doing some tremendous things in leading the effort um, in terms of helping churches to establish recovery churches, which is a brand new concept that I think has tremendous promise. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this PPT podcast. That's People, Places, and Things, making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.